Well, good morning and welcome to Bachelor Creek. We are so grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, for everyone who's joining us online, we are glad that you are with us as well. And uh, you might be interested to know that it is 69 days until Christmas. Uh, it is getting closer. And uh, speaking of Christmas, a uh, popular and favorite Christmas movie is Elf. And uh, in that movie, Will Ferrell plays Buddy, who is a human raised at the North Pole. And uh, he knows no differently. He accommodates to life as an elf, and he does all of the elf things. But as he gets older, it becomes very apparent that there are a lot of differences between him and the other elves. To begin with, he's twice the size of everyone else. When he takes a shower, the shower head hits him right in the chest. His legs hang over the bed. When he sings in the choir, he's a couple of octaves lower than, than everyone else. And in the workshop, when they're making toys, he is hundreds and hundreds of toys behind the pace of everyone else. And so eventually his adopted elf father pulls him aside and explains to him that he's a human. And Buddy can't really comprehend this. He's, he, he's frantic and he's in a frenzy. And so he leaves in an emotional outburst and runs outside. And he goes up to Leon the snowman and Leon says, what's wrong, buddy? And buddy says, it seems I'm not an elf. And Leon says, of course you're not an elf. You're 6'3 and have had a beard since you were 15. I wonder for you if you've ever said, it seems I don't belong here. It seems I'm different. Not that you're 6'3", not that you've had a beard since you were 15, but that, that you that this world isn't your home. I think as Christians, we often feel that, that, that I have different values, I've got different priorities, I, I see things differently. I think the more pressing question is, how do we reach a world that we don't belong to? We've been studying the book of 1 Peter for the last several weeks, and it's a letter written to small churches and believers who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. These Christians were massively outnumbered and they were facing hostility because they believed in Jesus. The question we have to ask is, how does a persecuted minority end up growing and transforming the entire Roman Empire in just a couple of hundred years? How does a new religion on one side of the Mediterranean Sea spread to the entire Roman Empire? Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. His subtitle is How an Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. It's a fascinating question because for those of us in the church today, we are in a new position of becoming an obscure and marginal Jesus movement in a society that's become increasingly hostile to Christianity. Now, it used to be in the past that Society was somewhat friendly to Christians. But now, according to a 2019 Barna study, almost half, 47% of non-Christians, say they have a negative view of Christians. We see books such as God is Not Great and The God Delusion become New York Times bestsellers. So, so this isn't news to any of us. We realize that, that culture is becoming increasingly hostile to our faith, or at the very least, they want us to keep our Christian faith private. So how do we live 
in a hostile culture, but even more than that, how do we actually think about transforming this culture? Well, when we think about it, there are two ways that Christians have, have typically thought about living in a hostile culture. One is to withdraw from it. So, so a lot of Christians believe that, that culture is so bad, it's so corrupt, that, that we have to be vigilant, we have to stand up against our culture, and we have to be careful about po- being polluted by it. And so people who want to withdraw, they, they think that the problems with Christians today is that they've been too influenced by culture. On the other hand, you have the opposite approach. Some call this the accommodation approach, to accommodate or to assimilate into culture. And these are Christians who believe that, that churches have become too isolated from culture. And because of that, they've, they, they're out of tune and they're disengaged from culture. So when you live in a hostile culture, how do you respond? Do you withdraw from it or do you stay involved? So let's say that that one of your non-Christian friends invites you out to the bar tomorrow night with some of his friends. And you know that the conversation is not going to be G-rated. You know this group of people, you know the sorts of things they talk about, and you know that that it's not going to be very good. And there are some people who who say, yeah, that's the problem with Christians today, is that they're they're comfortable going into bars when they should know better. But then there's some of you who think that the problems with with, with Christians today is that that too many of them are sticks in the mud and they need to get out a little. And what I hope you can see is that both of these approaches have real problems. If we withdraw from culture, we'll never have any influence. We'll live in our little holy huddles, our little Christian bubbles, and nobody will really care. On the other hand, if if we're too afraid to be different, then we'll fit in, we'll blend in, and nobody will see that we're distinct at all. So what would you do? What do you do? The Apostle Peter tackles this question. This morning, I want to briefly look at three answers to three questions. How we're supposed to respond, what it will cost, and why we should be willing to pay that cost. But before that, I want to read the text together, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For who would ever love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So with that understanding of the scripture, let's revisit that first question. How should we respond? How do we interact with a world that's hostile to Christianity? If I could summarize what what Peter's saying here, it would be this. Seek peace and be a blessing. Now in your notes, there's just blanks for seek peace, but, but if I were you, I would write seek peace and then next to it, write be a blessing. Seek peace and be a blessing. Do you notice what it says throughout this passage? Verse nine, it says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then in verse 15, it says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now you have to remember what's happening here. Peter is writing to a group of people who are facing heat because of their faith in Jesus. And honestly, it would have been much easier if Peter would have just told them and told us to either withdraw or be assimilated into culture. Instead, he says, don't withdraw from the world. At the same time, he says, don't be assimilated by the world either. Even when it causes them grief, even when it brings them hardships and challenges, he tells them to be out there engaged, building relationships, and yet to be distinct by virtue of their faith. So let's read verse 9 again. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter says, to this you were called. Okay, to to what have we been called? What's Peter trying to say here? We have been called to return a blessing when we are insulted by people who do not understand our faith. When they ridicule us, when they poke fun at us, when they insult us, we are called to respond by blessing them. For example, there was a Christian soldier who did this. He lived in the barracks with his unit. Every evening, he would open up his Bible and he would read the Bible and pray before going to sleep. The soldier in the bunk across from him would always make fun of him. He would hurl insults at him. He would make demeaning comments to him. One night, a a pair of dirty, muddy boots came flying at at the Christian soldier. The next morning, when the soldier who threw the boots woke up, he found that his boots were at the foot of his bed, clean and polished, ready for inspection. You see, this Christian soldier returned blessing for insult. And as a result, there were several soldiers in his company that became a Christian because of this one man's actions. So we shouldn't withdraw. 
Instead, we should bless. But we also shouldn't just blend in. And in verses 15 and 16, he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, against your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. So Peter here, he says a couple of things about, a world that, about living in a world that's hostile to Christianity. First, he says, don't be afraid of opposition. And second, he says, remain faithful to Christ. Revere Christ as Lord. There's a saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Now, I appreciate his sentiment, and I think I understand what he's trying to say, but I think a better way of saying that is preach the gospel always, and if possible, use words. Peter says that, that it's not going to be enough for you to live differently and to preach the gospel only through your actions. You would better be prepared to use words as well. If, if you're truly living differently and you're not withdrawing from society, then oftentimes you're going to be asked, what's up? Well, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when you live a life that demands an explanation, people are going to know, why do you do what you do? Why do you not do what you don't do? And you'll need to be prepared to verbalize why you live differently. We need to be engaged in the world. Not closing the doors to relationships, but building bridges. We're to live our lives for Christ openly in the middle of an unbelieving world, ready to explain the reasons for why we live distinct lives. Let me give you a little context here. Hundreds of years earlier, when God's people were carried off into exile into Babylon, there were some Israelites who wanted to live outside of the city of Babylon because Babylon was so evil and because they had hoped that they would get to return to their own home soon. And they had a point because the entire purpose in them being carried into, into Babylon is so that they would be assimilated into Babylonian culture. A false prophet spoke up and, and said that they'd be back home within two years, so, so go ahead and stay separate. But the prophet Jeremiah contradicted this, and, and he gave this advice to the people in Jeremiah 29, verses 5 through 7. He said, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, what Jeremiah is saying is don't withdraw like the false prophet wants you to. Move right in and live among the Babylonians and seek what's best for the city of Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Even though you're only exiles there. Even though Babylon is not your home. Seek there. Seek the peace and prosperity of that city. On the other hand, he says, do not be assimilated into the culture like the Babylonians would like you to be. Stay distinct and yet live among them and be a blessing to them. 
that this is much harder than withdrawing or being assimilated. It's what, it's what, it's what God's called us to. And then the same thing goes for you and me today. Don't withdraw from this world. Make friends and, and build relationships with people who aren't believers. Go to the kids' birthday parties. Hang out with people after work. Coach the soccer team. Join the PTA or the student council. Don't live in a little Christian bubble. At the same time, be distinct. Live in such a way that, that your devotion to God is evident to everyone and be ready to talk about it when it comes up. Now listen, this is the hardest of the options, but this is what we've been called to. The best way you and I will engage culture is not to accommodate it and not to withdraw from it, but to bless it. But secondly, Peter tells us the cost of doing this. You say, what's the cost? Be willing to suffer faithfully. You know, if you're going to accommodate or assimilate, if, if you're going to withdraw, I'll, I'll be honest, it's not going to cost you very much. You can go about your regular life and, and nobody's going to bother you. But if you don't withdraw, if you choose to, to live out your faith, it will cost you. Peter implies that, that Christians will face insults. He says in verse 14 that, that we may suffer for what is right. We may be threatened. In verse 16 it says that there may be those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ. So there is a definite cost to doing this. So you have an estimated 70 million people who have lost their lives because of their faith in Christ over the past 2,000 years. 45 million of these people died in the 20th century. Talk about a cost. 45 million people who have died for their faith in the last century. It has been estimated that more people have died for their faith in Christ in the past 70 years than in the first 350 years of the church's existence. Right now, some 200 million Christians are suffering for their faith. And part of our responsibility as the body of Christ is to pray for them. Hebrews 13.3 says, Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now here, closer to home, most of us will not experience open persecution. We may experience some discrimination. If we choose to live out our hope in Christ, we may get the occasional raised eyebrow. We may get an insult here or there. We may get ridiculed. You see, some people love parts of our faith. People generally think pretty highly of Jesus. They like his teachings on forgiveness and going the extra mile. But people may have a hard time with the, the Christian sexual ethic. They may have a hard time that, that you believe that, that, that Jesus is the only way to find salvation, that, that he's an exclusive hope. They may be okay with you having faith as long as you keep it private. You see, there, there's a cost to being engaged with culture and living in a distinct way. Several years ago, there was this HBO miniseries called Band of Brothers, uh, and it told the story of paratroopers in World War II. There's a scene in which Lieutenant Richard Winters is about to lead his troops in, in one of the greatest feats of the war, the Battle of the Bulge. 
A soldier pulls Lieutenant Winters aside and he says ominously, looks like you guys are going to be surrounded. And without hesitation, Lieutenant Winters replies, we're paratroopers, soldier. We're meant to be surrounded. You know, we are meant to be surrounded. We are meant to be right in the middle of things, engaging with people, living our life, yet doing so with hearts that are revered Christ as Lord. That means we're going to be surrounded. Sometimes, as Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, people will see your good deeds and they will praise your Father in heaven. But other times, as Jesus says in the same chapter, they will persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So when we don't accommodate culture, when we don't withdraw from it, but instead live distinctly in it, we will pay a price. Now let me be absolutely clear. I believe that being a Christian makes life better and makes you better at life. I do with all of my heart. I believe that when Christ's spirit lives inside of you, you have a joy, you have a peace, you have a fulfillment that the world cannot offer. But that does not mean that life will be easy. In fact, I want everyone who hears the words of my voice to accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers, but I want you to know exactly what that means. Don't become a Christian just because you think it will make your problems go away. Don't become a Christian because you, you simply want to get out of hell free card. Don't become a Christian just because your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend wants you to be. Give your life to Jesus because he's real. Because he's true. Give your life to Jesus because he was God in the flesh. Give your life to Jesus because he is drawing you to himself. And when you do know that you're making the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life, your life will change for all of eternity. But also know that there will be challenge. Because to be in exile means that this world is not our home. We live in a world that is marred by sin and you will face trials and you will face suffering and you will face persecution of some kinds. Jesus said anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And as we'll read next week, do not be surprised when that happens. By the way, that's why it's so important that we become a community of faith characterized by the qualities that Peter mentions in verse 8. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. To truly live this way, the church stops being a place that we merely attend and it becomes a community of support in which we are free from the insults and hostility that come from those outside of the church. This is absolutely critical if we're going to live in culture yet be distinct. Now here's the last question. Why would we be willing to pay the cost? Because Jesus paid it all. I mean, if it's, it's going to cost us, why not just go underground? Why not just assimilate into culture so that nobody knows the difference? Why would we be willing to pay the cost? It's a very real question because the cost is very real. And Peter answers this question in a couple of different ways. 
In verses 10 through 12, he quotes from Psalm 34. And the interesting thing about Psalm 34 is that it seems to have been written by David when he had to flee for his life from Saul into enemy territory. And David was scared because he could be killed as the enemy, and so he did this thing where he pretended to be insane, and it actually worked. And David came back into safety, and so he wrote this psalm praising God for his deliverance in the middle of enemy territory. And Peter, as he's writing his letter, he picks up on this idea, and he says that in a sense, we live in enemy territory. But as he writes in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He tells us that God will watch over us just as he watched over David. The other reason Peter gives is found in verses 18 through 22. Now, if you scratched your head as as we read these verses, you're not alone. It talks about Christ making proclamation to the imprisoned spirits and about Noah. The German theologian Martin Luther said this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So be sure that we're not going to clear this up in just a couple of minutes. But let me share a couple of possible interpretations for you, and then more importantly, give you the bottom line no matter what interpretation you take. One, in verses 18 and 19, it could mean that after his death, Christ went and proclaimed his victory to a group of disobedient demons, uh, principalities and, and, and powers of the spiritual world who had been at work in the days of Noah. And so they are bound up awaiting judgment, and Christ went and proclaimed to them his ultimate victory, a foretaste of what will happen at the final judgment. The other option, and the one that I slightly prefer, is that Peter is saying that through Christ, that Christ, through his spirit, was, was preaching through Noah during Noah's disobedient generation, just as he's preaching now through us to our generation. Noah preached for 120 years to his generation, and no one listened. And so what Peter's telling us is don't be discouraged if we sometimes get the same reaction that Noah got. God eventually kept his word and brought salvation to Noah, and so we can be confident that he will bring his, and keep his word to us too. And so according to that reading, if you'd read verse 19 this way, in his spirit Christ in the past proclaimed the gospel through Noah to the spirits, the, the souls of people who are now in prison. So, so they're in hell because they didn't believe Noah's message. But don't get discouraged. God eventually brought salvation in Noah's day. He'll eventually bring salvation in ours too. But both Jesus and Noah lived the way that Peter talks about. They both lived engaged to the world around them, and yet they lived distinct lives because of their faith, and they suffered because of it. Both suffered, but both were ultimately vindicated by God. Now, there's so much more that we won't untangle this morning, but here's the bottom line. We are united with Christ. And our commitment to him means that we will likewise suffer. But one day we will be vindicated just as he was because he now, verse 22, has gone into heaven and he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is why Peter says in verses 14 and 15, but even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. 
Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. We are blessed when we're persecuted because we're just like Jesus. And we'll be vindicated one day just as he was. And we don't have to be afraid because we revere Christ as Lord much more than we revere the opinions of those who insult us and put us down. Missionary Oswald Chambers said, it is the most natural thing in the world to be scared. And the clearest evidence that God's grace is at work in our hearts is when we do not get into panics. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Church, there is one who has gone ahead of us. He did not accommodate to culture. He did not withdraw from it. Instead, he lived in the world. John 1 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus had relationships with all kinds of people. He was criticized and he was ultimately killed, but he has been made alive and his victory has been proclaimed and one day he will be known to everyone. And Christian, he is at work in your life too. His victory is your victory. And the more that we keep our eyes on him and we see what he's done for us and we revere him as Lord, the more that we will be able to effectively engage our culture, not by withdrawing from it, not by accommodating to it, but living smack dab right in the middle of the culture as we revere Christ as Lord. That is how we will transform our world. But we cannot transform our world until Christ has first transformed us. And that's why Peter says in verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've never let the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus change your life, Peter says it can happen now we would invite you to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through the waters of baptism. And understand that, that he says it's not, it's not the removal of dirt, it's not just a bath. But when you are baptized into Jesus, your life is transformed for all of eternity. And then you will be in a position to not withdraw, to not to assimilate, but to engage the world and transform it so that God may get the glory. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the words of Peter. And honestly, God, it is, <laughs> it's hard to believe that they were written 2,000 years ago because they speak so directly to us. We can see ourselves and we can see our world through these words. And I pray that, that we would be a, a people, a church, that live on mission for you, that, that we don't hide in our little huddles, but we also don't blend into culture. We live distinctly, yet we engage, and I pray that, that we would be your people living on mission for you, seeking to transform our community, our nation, and our world. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we do. Help us to realize that there will be a cost to it. But God, I want to pray for those 
whose lives have never been transformed by you. I pray today they would make the decision to identify with with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They would believe that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, and they will declare that publicly by confessing Jesus as their Lord and Savior and being buried in the waters of baptism. God, would you stir in our hearts today? Help us to make decisions to serve you and live for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.